Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at the second part of verse 2 through verse 5 today. As you turn there, do be in prayer for some in our church family. I know Brother Mike Church lost his mom this week, so be praying for him and his family. Uh, Rob Vent lost a nephew, and so be praying for them as well. I'll be doing a funeral tomorrow for the Needham family, so pray for me as I try to minister uh, to that family. So I hope that you'll be praying for those families, and also be praying, uh, got to do a wedding yesterday for Kyle and Tatum Kanebush, be praying for them, a young couple. It was a good time together, blessed to be a part of that, so just be praying for them as well, and they're beginning that journey in marriage. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, well, the end of 2, uh, Paul is still encouraging Timothy here, dealing with false teachers, so as I read, follow along. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Encouraging words, huh? This morning. We want to look at these, though, and see what God has for us in this section here. As at the beginning here, Paul appeals to Timothy again to teach what is right. He says, teach and, and urge these things. I want to ask you this. Why is that important? Why is it important to teach what is right? In fact, the question that I'd lay before you is, why is teaching important at all? I want you to think about that. Because in this church, I've had this question brought up to me. Uh, you definitely hear it around other places. But when the word theology comes up, I've had people tell me, Pastor, you need to not bring that up. It's so divisive. That's not a word that we should use. And you'll hear Christians say something like, I love Jesus, and that's enough. Stop talking about theology. And they're answering this question when they say that of, is teaching important at all? The answer to them would be no. They might not come out and say that if you ask them that. They would say, oh, yes, it is. But in saying that theology isn't important, they are saying that teaching also isn't important. Uh, when we look at theology and the definition of the word to help us today, it, it, the definition in the dictionary is the study of religious faith, practice, and experience, especially the study of God and of God's relation to the world. You see, the fact is, as you sit here this morning, as you go about your life, you have a theology. You do. And you live by that theology. You have an understanding of who God is, uh, what he has done, and then because of what you know about him, it plays out then in how you live and in the decisions that you make on a, on a daily basis. This then is the theology we hold. Now, 
Sadly, it could be a theology about God that isn't good because there's not much study, not much understanding. It's just very little. Maybe you've come across people like that at work or in your family, right? Uh, of maybe who are even opposed to the Bible. And when they tell you why, right away, the, the reasons that they use, you're like, wait a second, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. You, you obviously don't understand. But that is their theology. That is their understanding of God, even though it's uh, not well studied or even well thought out. In James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, uh, James would write, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This does play out. The way that you live shows us your view of God and what you think about God. How you live, how you respond to life shows us, shows others your theology, and what you believe about him. You know, there's a scary saying that people say sometimes, I, I heard it growing up quite a bit, that, you know, you might be the only Bible people ever read. Have you ever heard that before? If that's the case, we're all in trouble. <laughs> because even as I'm saying all this stuff that we are talking about, the fact is, a lot of us in here know a lot about God, but we still mess up, don't we? We, we still fail, and it's a struggle that we have in, of sin. And that's always going to be the case in our life. We can learn and know about God. We can, we can know the Bible inside and out. Uh, but the fact is, we don't always live according to what we believe about God and know about God, and that's because of the sin in our life and the struggle that we continue to have to fight against sin. But knowing how important theology is, would you not agree that it's important that we get it correct that we know who God is, that we do study his word. Again, no doubt, we will get things wrong at times, but we need to do our best to stay true to God's word and to God's revealing himself to us through the word of God. And this is why Paul tells Timothy here to teach and urge these things. He's talking about the word of God, and he's telling Timothy it is, it is urgent. It is so urgent for all of us to know the truths of the word of God. And for so many different reasons. I mean, you, can, you could list them all out. One is, you're going to have opportunities probably this week to share the gospel with somebody. Well, you should know what the gospel is. You should be able to explain it to them so that they can understand it. As I just mentioned a minute ago, I said pray for these people in our church. Theology becomes really important when people in your family pass away. When the, when the rubber hits the road of life. Who is God? What is he doing? Those questions need to be answered. It's, it's easy when life is easy to not think about that. But when life gets very hard and difficult, we want to know how to get through these times. And what does God say about these things? What is he doing, maybe, would be the question even. Some of us maybe are struggling living with peace in a world that seems so chaotic. Understanding how do we have joy in this life? How do we, how do we experience joy that the Bible speaks about? Or maybe dealing with sin in your life. How do, I, how do I work this out? You know, some of you maybe walk in here this morning and you're kind of embarrassed and ashamed because of what you did last night or what you've done this week. You know, you sing these songs and you, you hear these things and you think, I'm just a hypocrite. I'm voicing these words that God is my God, or whatever it may be, but the fact is, he wasn't Thursday, 
because I turned my back on him. Here I am, a hypocrite. How, how do we know that the Bible speaks of hope and that we actually have hope? How do, we, how do we understand what this means and how to live with this? The answer is that we have a true theology of what the Word of God says. And the only way to do that is to be taught. See, I would guess that there's a number of you this morning, and Pastor Scott kind of alluded this in his prayer, that this time of the week is a bit awkward. Maybe you even think that you don't need this. That Maybe your time would be better served mowing your grass. Or if you're like me and my family, maybe folding some of the 14 loads of laundry you have in the house. You know, you think of all the things that you could get done instead of sitting here and listening to teaching. Paul here tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. And the reason for that is on these teachings is what hangs peace, hope, joy. Because the Bible does speak that as Christians, we are to have these things in our life. They are to be characteristics of, of our life. And I would guess many of you struggle on a daily basis to live that way. And maybe you wonder, why? Why is it? Well, can tell you why we need to continue to have a better understanding of what God's word tells us about this life about who he is about where we find our joy about where we find our peace where we find the understanding that we need to live in this way so this is what Paul is urging Timothy to do for his church he's saying teach and Urge these things so that the people can know the great promises of God and how they apply to us, and then in turn what that means for us. And so as we get to verse 3 here, Paul tells Timothy to not deviate from the truth. This is what he says. He says, do not deviate from this truth. Look at how he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... So there's a warning here for those who are going to deviate from the truth. And there's two standards for which our theology is based. Notice what it says. First, the sound words of Jesus. That's what he says. They obviously at this time had the words of Jesus. Uh, They were being passed along. But Paul also could have meant the words that he was writing here at this moment. There's some debate there with that. But we we need to remember who Jesus is. And so I send us to John chapter 1, verse 14. It should be on the screen. This is a common verse. But it tells us who Jesus is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we think about the sound words of Jesus, where do we go? We go to the word that we've been given. The word of God. Jesus, wrapped in flesh, is the word dwelling among us. And so that is where Paul is directing our attention to for how do we know the things of God? Well, we go to his word and we we have nothing else. That's what we have. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. This is what we heard. And Paul then adds, and teaching that accords with godliness. Now later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, Jesus would say, he says, I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. All right? 
But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What we read here is the work that the apostles did in writing scripture for us. The Holy Spirit giving them the words to write that weren't re- they weren't ready to be said at that moment, but they were then. And so Paul and Peter and James and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, they are, they are writing these words down for us to have today. And these are the teachings that accord with godliness. Paul actually alludes to this in 2 Timothy. We'll get to it later, I'm guessing. But in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, he says, and the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So see, Paul's equating his writings with Scripture, of which we have today. And so I'm reminded again as we read this passage, and I want you to be reminded that the Bible is what we have. We cannot add to it. We cannot take away from it. It is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so it becomes very important for us not to neglect it, but when we do read it, not to mishandle it. When we are teaching it, to teach it correctly. Now, I do think this needs to be addressed this morning because this is a way that we see so many deviating from the word of God. And I think all of us struggle with this in, in some sense, me too, is this. There's a, there's a God-centered theology, which is what we should have. But there's also a man-centered theology, of which we sadly fall into quite often. And you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, what is the, what is the difference? Well, a man-centered theology is centered, obviously, on man and his problems and his well-being. Thus, God is there, maybe, but if God is there, his reason for being there is to serve and to help man. That's the view. That's the way then that the Bible is approached. That's the way then that life is approached. And so I wrote down some questions that might help us to see, do I struggle with this in my life? All right, so I I wrote some questions down and I want you to think about it. I I want you to think if you've ever thought this way or if you ever think this way, okay? Questions like this. How could a loving God allow this to happen to me? That's man-centered. You're making life all about you. He serves my good though, right? If that's all you think he's doing, then you have a problem. Or how about this one? We should pray because we need a little of God's help now. Think about that statement. I hate that statement. I hear people say it all the time. We should pray because we need a little of God's help right now. You need all of God's help. You never for a second do not need his help. The only reason you breathe right now, the only reason that you can see me right now is because God allows you to do that. It's not because you're healthy. It's not because you're powerful or strong or you woke up or whatever it might be. The only reason we move and breathe is because God allows you every second to do it. So the moment you start to think, you know what I need right now? God, I just need a little bit of your help. Just a a little nudge or a little push and then I'll go. That's man-centered theology. Because you think you're powerful enough to do it on your own. And you shouldn't for a second think that. We're totally dependent on him. How about this one? This feels good and I like it, therefore God's okay with it. It's gotta be that way. 
It's, it's what I like. Now, I would guess your mind goes to homosexuality when we think about that and people's arguments for that. But I want to put your mind somewhere else. This is the worship service I like. So God must like it. Really? You think that's how it works? This is the type of preaching I like, therefore God must like it. Hmm. Okay. It's the same thought. It's the same it's the same thinking or whatever. You know, this is, this is the vacation I like. God's going to be happy with this type of vacation. This is the person I love. God's going to be happy with it. He made me that way, and it's making me feel good. And so God must be happy with it because I feel good with it. Well, that's man-centered, right? Or how about this thought? God only wants what is best for me. But the problem is we then define the word best. We, we put something there else. Because yes, God does what wants best for you. Do you know what's best for us? To just fall in love madly with him. To rely on him always, every second. To trust in him, to glorify him, and to praise him no matter what that may mean for us. But we define what's best. And we turn that theology to a man-centered theology. Or how about this one? For God to be pleased with me, I must do great things for him. I hear this from a lot of pastors. Yeah, that's what God needs. He needs you. He needs you to lead the charge. He needs you to just drive everything home. That's what he's been waiting for. He couldn't wait until 2023 to when you figured it out because that's when the army of God is going to take hold because you are just so special to him. Now, could that happen? Oh yeah, God uses us all the time. But when we start getting this thought in our head that God will be pleased with me because I'm doing great things for him, what does the Bible say? When did Christ die? At the right time. For who? The ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't need the godly to come in to help him. He died for the ungodly so that we could then be faithful to him. Our last one, because I can sense this is making all of us very uncomfortable. I hear this a lot now from churches, and I say this because I don't want us to get lost in this. To really make God happy, we must transform this community. I sadly see a lot of churches going this route. They think the job of the church is to change the whole community. To feed everybody who's hungry, to home everybody who's homeless, to make sure that every Every uh, child who doesn't have a home gets a home. Well, those are good things, and there's nothing wrong with those things. That actually isn't the mission of the, the church. Again, the church is to worship God, to love him, and to share the gospel. That's what we do. When we think that what God really needs is us to come in and make a, a move, again, I'm reminded God at any moment, and this is good news for me, God at any moment can save a soul, whether Tim is there or not. God can do that. And we have to trust in that. But when we flip our theology to be a man-centered theology, we start to put too much weight on ourselves and who we are. And as a result, as we're going to see in a moment, we lose things such as peace, hope, and joy. So what is a God-centered theology? Well, of course, it's centered on God, on who he is, and on what he has done. And so a God-centered theology drives us to our knees. 
as we see who he is compared to who we are. It causes us to see the world and its issues from God's vantage point instead of Tim's vantage point. Instead of my logic and what I think makes sense, I try to view it through God's word and what he says it is. Because of a God-centered theology, now I can understand things like evil and pain and suffering and, and sin and even my own sin. And I know how to deal with that. I go to the cross. I go to the cross again and again and his forgiveness is there for me over and over again. And because of this God-centered theology, what does it do? Well, it gives me freedom and hope because I'm looking to God who's done everything for me and he loves me despite my sin. If I could give you anything this morning and like force it into your brain, force it into your heart and make you live this way the rest of your life, it would be that. It would be that right there. God has given you freedom. He has given you a hope in Christ and he has done everything for you despite your sin. And when you go to him in your sin and you say, Father, forgive me, what I wish you knew is that every time he says, I have. I have. Because I think if we really lived that way, then as Christians, we really would be bubbling with hope, with peace, and with joy. Knowing that our Father has loved us so much that he's done everything we couldn't through Christ. And he forgives us and loves us. That's what a God-centered theology gives to us. It allows me to see that God is the center of all things, not myself. No other person is the center, no other created thing. No, no, God is the center of everything. And that's a good thing when Tim gets removed from the center because when Tim becomes the center, joy, hope, and peace seem to leave because everything's so chaotic and frustrating. It's, it's so hard. Even the little things become so difficult because Tim tries to be in control. I walked into my house the other day, don't remember what I was doing, come home, can't remember if it was from work or some whatever, walk into the kitchen, and the amount of anxiety that filled my soul just looking at the house was enough to make me say, I want to leave this place. Look at everything everywhere. I mean, just stressed out, toys and shirts and shoes and stuff on the counter, and it was just enough to make me blow a gasket to get mad at everybody. They have done no wrong. It's the first time they've seen dad today or whatever it might be. It's just pick this up and do this. And, what it, and where does it come from? Tim's in the center at the moment. This home revolves around me and I need all of you to conform with me. Don't point out my shoes on the ground over there. Those are fine. It's your shoes that are getting on everybody's nerves. You're laughing at me. But I think you do the same. That's when I make Tim the center. And it causes problems. A God-centered theology shows us who God is and it allows us to fall in love with God, not some manifestation of God. This, this could be something that I, I struggle with at, at times because sometimes I worry that church people have fallen in love with church things and not God. And when church things change, their love of it starts to change. And it's like, hey, God hasn't changed. Do you love God or do you love the things 
of the church because the things of the church are good and it's fine, but that's not God, right? And so I talk about worship. How, how we worship is fine, but it could change. And guess what? It's still fine. It's still faithful. And I get, I get fearful uh, that we have fallen in love with how certain church things make us feel. And that's what we're in love with is that feeling. We're not in love with the person of God, of who he is. Because it's not, we're not called to love that feeling. That, you know, some people will tell me, you know, they're not really, they're not Christians, but they'll, they'll tell me things like, you know, when I go to church, I just, I feel good. And you know what they mean? I feel good about myself because I went to church. But that feeling, that, that's, what they, that's what they like. And so then the question is, well, what happens when you go to church and you don't feel good? And, and you leave and you're like, that wasn't very good. Does that mean God isn't good? Because we need to be in love with him who never changes. Not some pastor, not some music, not some song, not some Sunday school teacher, not some family in the church who makes us feel good. It's God who we need to be in love with. And this is a God-centered theology. It shows us who God is. It allows us to fall in love with him. And it is what we need to get through life. Because when we, get, when we deviate from what we are called to, problems come. So look at verse 4. Where does this deviation come from? Well, these false teachers, he says in verse 4, the beginning of it, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Well, Paul doesn't hold back at all because he says, first of all, it comes from a lack of understanding. Look at what he, he doesn't even hide it. They understand very little? No. They understand nothing. He's, he's saying, I don't know if this is a bad word to kids, they're idiots. These people are idiots. Do not listen to them. They understand nothing when they deviate from the sound teaching of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into godliness. They think that they know what they're doing, but in fact, they know nothing. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, where it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, in Romans, Paul is talking about those who are lost, falling into their sin and being given over to their sin, but we see something similar here with these false teachers. They think they understand what they are doing but they don't. They, they think they, they know how to grow the church or how to do something, but they don't. What they're doing is, is wrong. They understand nothing. They have deviated and they have proved themselves lacking wisdom and understanding. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible tells us where wisdom comes from. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is important. We need to stick with God's instruction and not our own made-up thoughts and intuitions. Right? We, we have to do that. Why? Because the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Well, how do we know the Lord? From the Word of God. So we don't deviate from it. We stick to it. What does it say? Well, I think this would be better. No, nothing's better. We do what this says. And we stick with this. And look what he says next about them in the second part. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, uh, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. We'll get to that. But part of this, they, they lack focus. 
right? They, they lack focus because they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. This is not to be the teacher's focus. There's no true focus on the word of God. What there is is there's uh, throwing things out there to cause this controversy, to cause fights within the church. It's just like that friend that you know who's always angling. You guys got that friend? Always angling. Why? Just to get under people's skin. Not to actually help with anything. Does anybody know anyone like that? That is me and our friend group. I'm good at this. Let's just toss it out there and see what happens. Let's see how many people this frustrates. Sit back and laugh at them. We all know those people. They're not actually caring about their friends. They're not trying to help their friends out. They just want to angle, maybe to get their own way, or whatever the case might be. And that's what these teachers are doing. This is a warning that Paul is giving to Timothy. He says they don't actually want to know what the Bible says and then go and live it out. What they want to do is they just want to fight over the Bible. They just want to fight over the things of the church and try to gain control. And as we read just a second ago, we see what deviation results in in the last part of verse 4 and in the beginning of verse 5. It says these things produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So what are the results of deviating from the word of God? Well, he first says unhealthy living. I want you to look at those lists of words. I'm not going to read them again, but I want you to look at them and I want you to think about them. I want you to think about those descriptions. Think about Paul's argument here so far. He's saying if you get off the word of God, this is what's going to result in your life. Does this describe anyone you know? Does this describe you in your life? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. How many times when you've been obeying the word of God, you've been faithful to the word of God, that these are the things that described your life? I would dare say probably never. But as we get outside of the word of God, when we're not faithful, these things creep in. I think, don't get me wrong, I think we want to do what is right. I think oftentimes we have good intentions, but sometimes these good intentions and a desire to do it right can lead to bad decisions that slowly lead to unhealthy living. What I mean by that is you just start to read the word of God and you know it, but you can get a little bored with it, so you want to add a little bit of this and you want to add a little bit of that. And we all know the slippery slope that then can go on. To where the next thing you know, you're not living by the word of God, you're living by all the extra stuff that's been added on in your life. We all struggle with this and we all go through this. It wasn't the goal to be here full of envy and strife, but it's the result of where I'm at now. And it's all because we deviated from the word of God. And again, it can happen so subtly and for the right intentions. There's a very well-known pastor who's going through this right now. He's taking his church of tens of thousands of people down this horrible road. And I think he has good intentions. He wants to love people. His intentions was always to reach people. But you just slowly saw it in his life where he started to not like the Old Testament too much. His worship in his church, the way he would describe it and their strategies just seemed a little off, but he always had good reasonings for it. It's just, we want to reach people. 
we want to tell people about Jesus. But it was like, but you're kind of deviating from scripture of how you're going about doing that. You see, this guy would hire professional musicians who weren't Christians to lead worship. He's like, well, I want it to be good so that people will come. Yeah, but they can't really worship God and lead us in worship. Right, just a little, a little deviation. Then he started hiring Sunday school teachers who had teaching degrees but weren't Christians either because they'd be the best teachers. He could give them the curriculum, they could study it, and they could put it out there better because they had been trained. You see, again, oh, that kind of makes sense, but again, you have a non-Christian teaching the Bible to people, and I don't, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work, how it's supposed to go. But then as the cultural revolution continues to take place, and this guy's desire to continue to love people, you see him start to remove Old Testament passages. You see him now starting to talk about creation and really pushing creation aside. Creation story isn't so much about the order of things. It's just that God is creator. That's all you need to know. Don't worry about other things. And you see where it's going. People with wisdom see where this man is headed. He's just trying to get to the place to where he can now affirm every lifestyle and welcome them into his church. That's where he's headed. Now, <clears throat> he went from point A to point Z and he took a lot of little steps that again, okay, okay, but he was deviating to the point now that I would say that this guy is not a Christian at all. He's not an Orthodox Christian, completely heretical. Leading, to, like I said, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. I'm afraid to hell. Just because of deviation. And it's so unhealthy. There's no hope in God. There's no hope in who he is because then you've removed God's revealing of himself. And it also results, look what it says in 5a, a constant friction among people. This competition starts to set in when we deviate from the word of God. And this deviation causes us to fight each other competitively. And we know that this creeps into the church, don't we? This dog-eat-dog mentality that the world lives by, but we are not to live by. But when we've deviated from God's word, it becomes normal to us. We begin to plan on our own devices to make this whole church thing work. And when we see another church thing working over there, what do we do? We don't say, praise God. We say, my strategy's better. Don't look at their strategy. Look at my strategy. Well, what about that strategy? And then we start to sell strategies. And it becomes a marketing thing. And this competition takes place, which shouldn't be in the church. <clears throat> it can happen with Sunday school classes. It can happen with small groups. It can happen in families. But this is so far from what the church is supposed to be. Remember, we've been, we've been brought together in Christ. You're here because of Christ. I'm here because of Christ. I don't have anything to compete with. You don't have anything to compete with. It wasn't because I was so good. It wasn't because you were so good. It's because Christ is so good. And that's where we find our rest. And so as we finish these verses, the last part of verse 5, we see how deviation or what it is centered on. First of all, it's centered on spiritual blindness. We are who are depraved in mind and depraved of truth. Those who are deviating from God's word have a mind that is depraved, Paul is saying. 
As a result, they're spiritually blind. That's a strong word that he uses there, deprived of the truth. And again, sadly, they, they think they know what they are doing, but they don't really know. What they have is a blind shepherd leading the sheep to their own destruction. Which is a sad picture. But that's what Paul is painting here, and that's why Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you have to deal with these false teachers. Because there's a lot at stake here. Your church family, who you love and who God has put you in place to to shepherd and to guide and to direct, these false teachers are coming up and they're completely blind and they're leading your people astray off the cliff to death. And you need to deal with it. They have good intentions maybe, but good intentions do not equal correctness, does not equal truth. We need to stick with truth, Paul says. And so he says, They're centered on spiritual blindness, but also, the last part of verse 5, we see materialistic gain. It says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It's crazy to think how all this stems from a desire for personal gain. Now, of course, this could mean financial gain, which maybe your mind goes to. I know that's the first place my mind goes to. But it can also mean a more general sense of gain. Teachers have a lot to gain. Pride, fame, people liking you, numbers, good feelings, all these sorts of things. These are all pitfalls that teachers and leaders can fall into. And these things too often become the motivation that keep leaders leading and cause them to deviate because they want to see these results. I'm sure you feel this in your life as well. You, you want people to like you. At least you, you should. I guess there's some of you, maybe you take great pride that nobody likes you. And that's where you live, and I guess you can. Okay? But most people, you want people to like you. You generally do. When you, when you go to your kid's school, and there's a, a field trip, and you're, you're doing the field trip, and you got a couple little kids with you, and you're meeting some of the other parents, you have a desire that those other parents will like you, that you will like them. I, I mean, I would think that's how it is. But sometimes that desire will cause us to deviate from the word of God to get them to like us, won't it? Could be subtle, could be something very small, but we do want them to like us, so maybe we won't say something, or maybe we'll agree with something we know we shouldn't agree with, or the list could go on and on. We all suffer from this, as I said. We deviate from God's will knowingly, and we do it just for personal gain in some way. You may have done this this week. You sinned knowingly because it felt good to sin. Or you sinned knowingly because certain people were around and you knew it would help you. You sinned knowingly because you knew your boss wasn't looking and you could get away with it you still did it knowingly and you deviated why for personal gain for personal pleasure it's bad enough when we do this in our own personal lives but it's really bad when church leaders do it because when pastors start to do this it leads the destruction of many people not just themselves because they have people following them 
And so what does Paul warn? He says, Timothy, urge and teach these things. We must remain faithful. And maybe the question would be, well, how do we do this? Well, I would think first the answer would be prayer. The first thing that we need to do to remain faithful to God, not just church leaders, but you as well, is prayer. Asking God to help you be faithful. You say, well, Pastor Tim, that just seems so simple. It's what God calls us to. He tells us to pray. And so we, we pray, and even when we look at the Lord's Prayer, it's a very simple, basic prayer. But what is it? It's a praying for our daily needs. Help us not fall into temptation. Help us to be people who forgive. These are all simple things, but why does Jesus tell us to do it? Because we need that. We need that, to pray, to say, God, help me to not deviate from your word. We must be faithful as well to stick to the sound words of Jesus Christ. And as it says in the teachings that accord with godliness. My guess is if you've, if you've been in church very long at all, you know a good chunk of the main things that the Bible teaches. We can easily get lost in some of the little things that the Bible teaches. Those are things we should try to strive to know and to learn. But there are definitely some main things that we can hold on to and stick to. And we must never add to that. And we must never take away from that. And what the Bible says is as we stay true to the word of God as a church family, as pastors, as the congregation, God will be faithful to us. He will fill us with all of his promises that he's promised to give us. And we will be able to have a life full of joy, of peace, and of hope. But it's a joy that is everlasting. It's a peace that is everlasting. Again, I could come up with a service so that when you guys leave, you guys would all be pretty pumped. I think I could do it. I could really design that. But once you order your food at Cracker Barrel and they give you meatloaf and you order chicken, guess what? It's gone. You've lost it. You've lost all joy. Or if you're like me, just turning left on South Dixie, I've lost my joy by then. I'm frustrated. Because that doesn't last. That's not real. My goal as a pastor here is to do my best to be faithful, to teach and urge these things to you that matter. That will give you a hope and a peace that lasts beyond this afternoon, but takes it all the way to when you're in the hospital room with your loved one. And that line goes flat. And you're asking the question, what is it, what do I do now? But then you know, I cling to the cross. I continue to trust in my Savior who loves me. And I know he loves me. And I'm not going to let Satan make me doubt that at this moment, that he doesn't love me, because I know he does. I'm going to hold to his promises. I'm going I'm to trust in him. I'm going to continue to love him and who he is, because he is faithful. That's what we cry out during those moments. And it doesn't feel the best, but we know this is the truth. Let us, as Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, as a congregation, be faithful to not deviate from the word of God, but to trust God and how he has revealed himself to us and how we are to live for him and then trust 
that he will then produce the results that he desires and that he wants and that that is what faithfulness is to him. I hope that we can be faithful to that. I'm gonna ask you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God. We're gonna sing one last song and it'll be quick. But maybe some of you during this time of response, you do need to spend some time in prayer where you're at or wherever because you know you've been struggling with deviating from the word of God. But I hope you also remember the promise that he forgives, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And he, forgiveness is found in him continually. And so I hope you'll respond to God's word this morning. Let's pray and then we'll sing. God, I thank you for your word. God, help us to stay true to your word. God, I'm so thankful for how often it just seems so simple because it really is. God, yet that simpleness sometimes makes us uncomfortable and we feel we need to add to it or we want to shy away from it or we start to say things like, well, this was written a long time ago and things are different now. God, help us to stay centered on you, not on us, but on your truth and what your word is. Help us to cling to it. No matter what society might throw at us, no matter what some false teachers might throw at us. Help us to hold true to your word, knowing that it is only through your word that we see life, that we know who you are, who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and the offer that is freely given to all, that salvation is found in the blood of Christ. God, deal with us this morning as we sing this song. Help us to worship you through it as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.